that, I lost my spot. Good afternoon. As you can see, we're uh, reading from Hebrews. It's chapter 2, uh, commencing at verse 5. It is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made, him, you made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, from whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who, who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Thanks, Wayne, and it's a great privilege to open a really extraordinary passage of Scripture this afternoon. If you wanted to find a part of the Bible that kind of expounds the glory of Jesus uh, in one big passage, you would do uh, a lot of work to find a better passage. There is so much going on in these verses. I found it very hard he says jokingly, to keep the sermon to one hour. But I'll do my best to keep it to one hour, uh, and Uni Church can just roll on in afterwards. Well, friends, we are at week three in our series looking at this extraordinary letter uh, of Hebrews. We don't know exactly who wrote it. My personal take is possibly Barnabas, but we don't know for sure. Uh, we don't know exactly who the Hebrews are, but we do know some things about them as you read through the letter. You kind of pick up a flavour of the group of people that the author is writing to. 
Uh, we know that it's most likely urban Christians with obviously a Jewish background, hence the term Hebrews. They understand a lot about uh, uh, the Jewish context, uh, the Jewish base of the Christian faith. Uh, for example, also the urban part, because the idea of city is mentioned in Hebrews far more than any other New Testament letter. It talks about the city and the city they live in. We also know that these uh, Christians live in a very pluralistic society. Uh, there are lots of different beliefs that are competing for people's attention. And that as a result of that, being a Christian for them means being marginalised. Being a Christian means facing hostility and even suffering for being a Christian. In other words, it's not easy. And so the big question that this letter is seeking to address is, how do you live as a Christian when life is hard? How do you persevere when being a Christian is not popular, when it's not trending in the right direction on Twitter? And the temptation is to give in. And I think that is an extremely relevant question. Yes, we're not, we're not in the first century, but we are in a culture that is increasingly coldly indifferent to Christianity. Not always positive. So what's the answer? Well, here's the answer, by the way, is about the world's shortest sermon. Uh, here's the answer. The answer is this. You persevere by setting your eyes on Jesus. That's the big message of the book of Hebrews. Fix your eyes on Jesus. That's how you get through the mess that is this life. That's how you persevere. And the opening chapters of Hebrews, what they do is they paint a picture of this Jesus that we are to set our eyes upon. Like, how glorious and beautiful then is this Jesus? Because Jesus better be pretty good. I'm going through a pretty tough time. And so the author starts with this extraordinary, huge picture of the glory of Jesus. I call it the infinite and terrifying glory of Jesus. And I think there's a slide which will help us in a second. The infinite glory of Christ. As we read those opening verses, it's Jesus, the Son of God, heir of all things, co-creator of the universe, the, the, the very radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, the sustainer of the universe, the source of all our salvation, and finally the one who reigns with the Father at his right hand. There's a lot going on there, and that can kind of feel a bit wordy and kind of hard to grasp hold of. So what I've done is I've, I've tried to develop uh, an analogy for us using paper. And so I put a picture of paper up there, just in case you forgot what paper looks like. And then I realised, of course, we give you a bit of paper. So we, we've gone to all expenses to give you visual and kinesthetic learners something to work with this afternoon. What I want you to do is imagine that the distance between Earth, I'm going to say our Earth as opposed to the other Earth, uh, Earth and the Sun is reduced to the width of a piece of paper, so the, the thinnest bit. Okay, so you with me there? Uh, the distance between us and the sun, one sheet of paper. The distance between us on Earth and the next star, because obviously the sun's a star, that's the old trick question, right? H how high do you think that, that, sh that stack of paper is at that point? And th this is a, I'm happy for a bit of engagement. If you want to show off and, and flex your trivia knowledge, or just brave and think, let's just roll out a random number. No, very polite and here. 10 centimetres. 22 metres is the next nearest star. Uh, what about the diameter of our galaxy, the Milky Way? 
I'll, I'll give you a hint, more than 22 metres. Right? This is a simple mathematics thing here, right? I have two R's degrees, even I know that. Uh, the diameter of the Milky Way is 500 kilometres of paper. That's how tall the stack is now. The nearest other galaxy to ours, 10,000 kilometres. That's how high your stack of paper is now. Uh, the best, and it is a guesstimate, of the known universe at the moment, 50 million kilometres of stacked paper. Uh, that's about uh, a third of the way to the sun, so the other bit's starting to catch fire. That's, that's how big uh, our stack of paper is. Now, if there is a person who holds all of this together, who's created it by the power of his word, is this the kind of person you invite into your life to be your personal assistant? To kind of fit into your life when you've got a spare moment. You're busy, right? As long as it's not too much bother, as long as I don't have to challenge or be changed too much, then I'm willing to accept God into my life. And this is the big point that the author of Hebrews is making. Jesus is superior, not just beyond our comprehension, and his word is superior. And when I preached this last week after, after the sermon, this woman came up to me and she said, John, look, if what the author to the Hebrews is saying is true, look, if God's word really does say that this is how big Jesus is, then there is a massive gap between me and Jesus. Jesus is astonishingly transcendent and out of reach, and I am completely insignificant. How on earth can I relate to Jesus if that picture is true? Now, I did what every good minister does, I'm giving away some tricks of the trade here. I said, firstly, great question. That's what you say when you need time to think, right? Great question. Because actually, by the way, it is a great question. And then I said, come back next week. Now, not because I'm not preaching at Parkville this week and someone else can take the hard question. No, because this week, the text we're looking at this week, the second bit of chapter 2, actually answers this very question. In fact, you have to feel the weight of the first part. Jesus is extraordinarily transcendent and all-powerful. And Hebrews says this, keep your eyes on Jesus because not only is Jesus, the Son of God, infinite in power and glory, at the same time, Jesus is also intimately close. Infinite in glory and intimately close at the same time. Indeed, he's one of us. He's human. He shares our humanity. And this is what the, the author to the Hebrews builds on, particularly in verses 5 to 9. He goes to great lengths to show that Jesus truly, absolutely shares our humanity. He's, he's not Superman Jesus, where he kind of looks human on the outside, but really bullets can bounce off him. He, he's flesh and blood, just like you and me. And what he does in verses 6 to 8 is use Psalm 8 Poetically, he's kind of using a bit of poetry, pitching to the artsy types in Hebrews. The art students ask, you know, kind of, if you love your poetry and literature, this is the kind of thing he's using to tell us the story and reality of Jesus' incarnation. He says this from, from verse 6. 
What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? And you'll notice that this little phrase, son of man, that, that might sound familiar to you. By the way, son of man, firstly, it's just an Old Testament kind of phrase that literally means person, human being, not of any great stature, just a regular human being. And so what the author of the Hebrews is doing is saying, look, Jesus is just an ordinary human being. In fact, he represents humanity. He's kind of using that within the frame of Psalm 8. Uh, it's similar to how Paul refers to Jesus as a second Adam in Romans and other places. It's kind of a, a symbol of how Jesus truly is human. He's just a son of man. But also you will know that if you've read the Gospels, that little phrase, son of man, is often a phrase that Jesus refers to himself with in the third person. But what he'll often say is, the son of man. Not just a son of man, but puts a definite article there. And so what's happening is two things. Just the ordinariness of a son of man, but also hearkening back to Jesus' phrase, the son of man, which takes us back to a different Old Testament part uh, in, uh, in Daniel 7, uh, where we hear of, uh, 2 Samuel 7, sorry, and Daniel, as we hear of this future king, this son of man who will come uh, and bring in God's kingdom, a time of completion and judgment and finality. And so Son of Man evokes both of those things very poetically and beautifully by using Psalm 8. And he goes on to write, you made them a little lower than the angels, or perhaps a little while lower than the angels. There's a different way of translating the words there. Once again, a poetic way of saying human. In the kind of worldview, the heavens are up here. It's kind of a vertical idea, and that's the angels live in the heavens. And he's got, a, he's got a bit of a thing with angels. And so below them is humanity. And in previously we've been told Jesus is superior. He's above the angels. But here he comes below. And by the way, the angels, are, they are pretty amazing creatures. They're not those cute fat babies with wings that are put on toilet paper. You know, they're kind of the, fat, the cheruby fat baby with the bow and arrow. Like if you've got a Valentine's Day card maybe this week from your, uh, someone who showed some romantic affection towards you, maybe you receive such a card. Uh, it's a very pretty picture, but it's nothing like angels. Because as you read the Bible stories, what's the very first thing every angel says when they meet somebody? It's on their business card, right? Angel of the Lord, do not be afraid. Fat babies with bows and arrows are not, are not terrifying, right? They're, they're cute. Now, there is something uh, extraordinary, powerful about angels. They abide in the throne room of God, singing holy, holy, holy. But he's made him lower than the angels. And, but then you've crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. Jesus is now exalted again to glory at the right hand of God the Father. And notice how it says everything's now under his feet. Uh, it's, it's an ancient practice that when you won a battle, what you would do is you would put the loser on the ground. You do this and you would literally put your foot on their neck as a way of saying, ha ha, I won. It's kind of a bit of a flex, a mic drop moment in the ancient world. And the most astonishing thing is, is Jesus is victorious. He has his foot on the neck of his enemies. He's able to drop the mic. But look at verse 9 with me. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because of what? 
How is his victory made, made certain? And what, what's the reason why he has his foot on his enemies? It says, because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In other words, the kind of, the whole focus and journey of the incarnation is Jesus becomes human just like us, not, not merely to understand what it's like and care for us, which is absolutely true, but ultimately to die for us, as it says. He might taste death for everyone. That's, that's the kind of the journey of the incarnation. He became like us so he could die for us and now he is raised and rules over us. That's kind of the summary of, of Psalm 8 that this, the author of Hebrews uses to kind of say, no, it's true. Jesus is both the glorified, infinite, glorious son of God and at the same time became just like us. And then what he does is he draws out three implications, uh, three key things that flow from this reality. And the first one is, we've got to hopefully have a slide for this as well. The first one is, uh, Jesus is therefore the pioneer and perfecter of our salvation. The pioneer and perfecter of our salvation, particularly looking at verses 10 to 13. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Now, the idea of pioneer, it's also very close to the word author. So often, some translations will put down the author uh, of, of our salvation. That's okay. It's just trying to translate one word across two cultures can be a bit tricky. But the key idea is, if someone is the pioneer or the author, they're the ones that do the work. They're the ones who, who, who do the salvation. In other words, salvation is Jesus' work. He's the pioneer. He's the author of it, not us. We are the receivers. He is the rescuer. We are the ones being rescued. But you would have noticed if you were paying attention that little word there, perfect. Should be made the pioneer of their salvation, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Now, what does it mean that Jesus was made perfect? Because the implication could be, is that, is that saying Jesus was imperfect? The answer is no. It's not saying that Jesus was imperfect or incomplete. Uh, the, the, what the idea of perfect here means, it means to complete a goal or a mission or a task. Uh, the author will use it later on in chapter 5 and chapter 7, this same idea. In other words, you, you complete a task by making it perfect. You could say this, in other words, the, the ultimate purpose of God's mission in Jesus was that Jesus become the heavenly glorified or conquering Christ and Saviour. That's the mission, that's the goal, that's the task. And to achieve this mission, for it to be perfected or completed... Jesus had to go through suffering, especially the suffering and disgrace by being executed on a cross. That is how he fulfills his mission. That's how it is perfected, made perfect. And the astonishing result of this is that you and I are made holy. Holy. 
which is why we often refer to Christians as saints, just another word for holy, and belong therefore to Jesus' family. Now, the, the word holy is kind of, can sometimes be a bit hard to understand. Uh, it means to be set apart for a special purpose. Uh, I often use the example, when you have someone around to your house normally, you have the normal crockery, but when someone really important, say the vicar's turning up for lunch, you get the special crockery, the one that, that the Queen sent you or that Grandma has left you. You get it down and you use it, or maybe it's a paper plate. You get it, but it's set, set aside for a special purpose. It's holy. And the Scriptures say that you and I are holy. We are set apart for a special purpose of serving God. And further, the language here is the language of family. It says that we are Jesus' brothers and sisters. Now, I've got a, a lot of cousins. I have 24 cousins. Uh, 20 of them are on my mum's side. And so when we had a, a Christmas lunch with all mum's side of the family, with the 20 cousins and I don't know how many uncles and aunts, about 10 uncles and aunts, and, you know, and they're, you know, it's, it is chaos. Now, um, my family are lovely, but they are a bit awkward. I don't know about your family. Uh, and so what would happen after Christmas lunch is my uncles and aunts in particular would put a musical uh, just, uh, event on for us, whether we liked it or not. There was, there was not options here. This was just compulsory. And they're all musical. And so my mum and her sister would do a duet with the, you know those paper hats on that they really don't make. No one looks good in them, let's just be honest. And my uncle, who's even more awkward, he has a baton that he just keeps on him at some point, And he'll pull it out. And he will conduct the rest of the family through these 1940s and 50s sing-along type. Look, I like, look, my family is, and you're laughing if your own family is awkward, right? Look what Jesus says in verse 11. Both the one who makes people holy and the one who, is, uh, who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus is not ashamed to call you his sister. And Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother. Not ashamed. Not just, you know, kind of, we're kind of related and we don't like to talk about it. Proud. The idea of singing, right? What does it say there? Uh, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in assembly. I will sing your praises. That is astonishing. Jesus looks at you and he says, that one's one of my brothers. That one is one of my sisters. What an extraordinary comfort. You might feel that no one else thinks you're important or significant. You may or may not have a good relationship with your family. Maybe it has both at different times. But you can know how valuable you are to Jesus. Not just a brother or sister, someone he's not ashamed of, someone he sings over and rejoices. That is extraordinary. Well, second, we see that Jesus has defeated the power of death. This is verses 14 to 16. Through his incarnation, becoming human, Jesus is able to defeat our ultimate enemy. Verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, 
he too, that is Jesus, shared in their humanity. What it it literally says is, uh, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shares the same things. He too shares uh, flesh and blood, the things that make us fragile, the things that can break if we fall off our bike or if we cut ourselves or more seriously, if we face serious illness or even death, the things that make us mortal. What is the purpose? Well, we see that. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Now, the link between the devil or Satan and the power of death is this. Clearly, as we read through Scripture, uh, Satan is the one who brings sin into the created world. We read this in Genesis 3. You can go back to Genesis 3 and read the story. And the result of that is death. Uh, That is God's judgment upon sin. His good and righteous judgment. And the power of death is this. There's nothing we can do as desperately as we try to prevent it. St. Jude has some very smart people. We have, I reckon, enough doctors and healthcare professionals to start our own hospital. St. Jude, you've got a great name, right? St. Jude's Hospital, right? We're, we're ready to go. The marketing plan is ready to go. Right? We have intelligent people who work in business, who work in our government, who run their own company. There is no medicine available that stops death. There is no government policy that we could introduce that stops sin and death. We all sin. And therefore, if Satan's power is to be destroyed, there needs to be a real and genuine way of dealing with sin. Because we don't have the answer, we have the problem. And the answer is this. Sin is solved by his death, says the author to the Hebrews. That is how he achieves it. Because Jesus dies in our place, he bears our judgment and we are freed from the power of sin. This is the the great news of the gospel. Satan, yes, is still our adversary. He still resists. But his power is broken. We know our sins are forgiven, which means we can approach God with confidence, without fear of condemnation. It says in verse 15, we are now set free from being enslaved to the fear of death. See, as as long as the weight of our own sin and guilt kind of hangs off us, our sins are terrifying because they are undealt with and we will face God. Now, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only have our sins been destroyed, we can face the Lord God with utter confidence. Rather than fearing death and fearing judgment, we have a true and living hope. And hope, friends, is the opposite to fear. This means that you can trust Jesus not just with your life, you can trust Jesus with your death. We don't think about death often, and often we're very confronted when someone close to us dies, and rightly so. It's a terrible thing. But it is no longer the final word. 
we can trust Jesus and approach God boldly. I I love the great old hymn, And Can It Be? The third verse says this by Charles Wesley. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. And this is the great line. Bold I approach the eternal throne. That's a pretty arrogant thing to say, right? Not just, hi God, it's John. Did a bit of work for you back on earth. No, bold. Bold you approach the eternal throne and claim the crown. Through Christ, my name. Only through Christ can we have this bold hope. For he has defeated sin and death. Well, thirdly, we see that Jesus is our great, merciful, and faithful high priest in verses 17 to 18. Once again, uh, our author loves his angels in verse 16. We're back to the angels again. Uh, Surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. That's us, by the way. Not the angels, that is. I don't know. Maybe you are. But most of us would be Abraham's descendants. That is God's people. Then verse 17. For this reason, he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way. He's emphasising this point, isn't he? He wants to make it really clear, we understand. In order that Jesus, that is he, might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, what does it mean to be a priest? Now, I think culturally there's a bit of an echo of what a priest means to be. Uh, I'm a priest. Uh, Nat's a priest. Uh, Alex is a priest. We have a lot of priests on staff. Uh, my dad is a priest. My grandfather, uh, he's passed away and I was a priest. My father-in-law, my sister's father-in-law, my sister's brother-in-law, uh, my cousin, and there's, if we were to go back a few more generations, there's a whole lot more I could point out. In other words, it's the family, it's the family business, right? It's the family business. Uh, and one of the funny things being a priest is people kind of, when, you, when they find out you're a priest, they kind of don't know what to do with you. Uh, they feel a bit awkward at times. And what, the first thing they're thinking, I reckon, is, have I sworn out loud in front of this guy in the past 10 minutes? I reckon that's what most people are thinking. Anyway, uh, my father-in-law is very smart. He, he used to hang his clergy robes in the car, visible. Uh, he lives working in a country parish where there were lots of different sites. We'd have to drive between each different site. And sometimes he would have to, for the Lord's work, go faster than the, the registered speed. But he knew that the police, when they pulled him over, saw the robes. They would always say, thanks, Father, put a good, off you go, put a good word in with me with the guy upstairs. Now, I'm not suggesting that I do that or that you should do that. It's to illustrate the fact that people think that priests somehow have some special connection with God, right? Some, and there's an element of truth in that, in, in the role of the priest's job in the Old Testament. We have a, a, an illustration of a, of a high priest here uh, wearing his ephod and all the gear. Uh, the priest's job in the Old Testament was, in fact, to represent the people before God. That, that was his job. In other words, they had to be one of the people to represent the people. It's kind of obvious, right? And what they would do is they would intercede on behalf of the people towards God by particularly offering sacrifices for the sins of the people. A huge part of Old Testament's priest's job was killing animals. It's a bit like what a vet does now, isn't that right? Just just horse equine medicine, right? Uh, It was literally a bloody job. 
And we're told here Jesus is not just a priest, but a high priest, a faithful high priest. Um, Once again, there was a distinguished uh, position called a high priest who had a job on the the holiest day, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur in, in Hebrew. He had to enter the Holy of Holies, the kind of most special place in the temple. And there was only one day a year a high priest could go in and they had all these rituals and things to go through before they could enter because this is where God lived in his holiness and his glory. And it was dangerous to enter that. And so what they would do is they would wash themselves five times to to kind of symbolise a spiritual purity. And there was a changing of clothing five times to symbolise the the putting on and preparing yourself. In other words, a lot of work is needed to come into the presence of God. And he would offer sacrifices on behalf of himself, recognising his own sinfulness, and only then could he make a sacrifice of atonement on behalf of the people with God. And that little phrase, atonement, is just three English words put together. At one meant. Things that are far apart are brought together as one. Reconciliation. But there was a big problem with this system, with all its kind of backups and dresses and water. It was that the high priests themselves were not perfect. And the sacrifices themselves were not perfect. And so we see with Jesus, the great high priest offers sacrifices not for himself, just for his people. He doesn't need to offer a sacrifice for himself because unlike all the other high priests, he was without sin. He already was perfect. And unlike the other high priests who offered ineffectual animal sacrifices, Jesus offers the perfect sacrifice of himself. And so what we have in Jesus is is the one who is both the perfect high priest and the perfect sacrifice. And that means, unlike the other high priest sacrifices, which were done again and again and again and again, it's done once for all. It's complete. And this is only possible because Jesus is like us in every way and without sin. Like us in every way. A great church father, Gregory of Nazianza, said, that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. In other words, if there's any part of him that wasn't truly human, then he hasn't saved or healed humanity. That which, is not, which he has not assumed, he has not healed. And so, brothers and sisters, you can go to Jesus with your sin, knowing that he has completely and once for all dealt with it. The sacrifice and the high priests are both trustworthy and faithful. But two, notice, Jesus is also a merciful high priest. He's not just qualified because he's one of us. It means Jesus is also merciful, which means he actually understands what it's like to be us, to be human, as it says in verse 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus understands what it is like to be tempted. He didn't sin, but but the temptation is real. They're not just bouncing off him as if it doesn't matter. 
He is sympathetic and compassionate towards us. He, he has faced the stresses that we, we face. He faced the temptations that you face. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like not to be believed. He knows what it's like when people speak about you behind your back when you're trying to do the right thing. He knows what it's like to even despair of life. He's the one who cried out, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. We have a high priest who understands us intimately and compassionately and mercifully. He knows what it's like. And this is all made possible because of who he is. Yes, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, who sustains all things by his powerful word. Amen, that's who Jesus is. That's who we look to. But we also look to Jesus as the one who became flesh, who became like us, to destroy Satan and sin and death and set us free to be our great high priest, to atone for our sins, and the one who's able to help us in every situation. So brothers and sisters, keep looking to Jesus. He is the pioneer and perfecter of our salvation. Amen.